Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another edition of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Today is June 1st, uh, 2020, or um, it's today is not really June 1st, but when this posts, it will be June 1st. Um, today is actually the 28th of May. It's Thursday. I usually record these on Thursdays and uh, get them ready to put, to um, to post on uh, on Monday. Uh, I do it a little bit early so it gives my my uh, audio technician uh, time to get it uh, get it all put together uh, properly. Um, I've got a. Uh, <coughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to hack too much. Uh, today, but I've got a frog in my throat, and uh, I don't know what to do about that. So, um, Memorial Day was last week. I hope uh, everybody was able to do something uh, fun, and it seems as though we're all getting out of the house uh, a lot more today, um, at least in my part of the world and in the part of the world where my family and friends live. Um, we're, we're moving about a little more. We have started um, I, I um, am part of uh, several men's groups uh, every week, and we have been meeting. We've been meeting on online, doing uh, Zoom or FaceTime or um, you know whatever whatever we can make work. Um, and this last week, we we started meeting face to face again. Um, so we're still trying to be a little bit cautious. And uh, my wife has asthma. So she's uh, she feels a little more a little more vulnerable to all this than uh, some people. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so we're trying to be careful, but um, things look like they're getting um, uh, back uh, in order uh, to at least what what will become normal um, again. I don't think it'll be uh, I don't think it'll be the normal of days past, but um, I think things are going to change because of all this in a lot of ways. Um, we didn't do anything exciting on Memorial Day. We um, we went to we drove to Nashville, and went to went to Bass Pro Shops. Um, we were going to take a hike, but it was it was hot, hot and sticky, sticky here <laughs> in Middle Tennessee. We we got up Memorial Day morning and did a little bit of yard work, and just just in doing that for for about an hour or less. We were sweating, and it, it just we just decided, no, let's just not go for a hike today. So we drove up to Nashville and uh, went to Bass Pro Shops and walked around, and just they usually have a Memorial Day sale, so we wanted to see what was what was going on. It was just nice to get out and do something different. Anyway, um, so moving into our our discussion today, what is the church? Um, have you ever have you ever thought about that? Um, like really thought about it? Um, maybe you maybe you would say it is the collection of saved people. Well, yeah, you'd be right. Uh, you might use one of the metaphors that that is used in the New Testament to talk about the church, like the bride of Christ, uh, Ephesians five. Uh, yeah, that'd be right. Um, 1 Timothy 3.15 says it's the pillar and support of the truth. Um, yep, that's true too. All of those things are true. But I would like to suggest that there is something even more basic 
And I'm going to suggest that if we don't get this right, the church is never going to be any of those other things that we've talked about. I think this, what I'm going to describe, undergirds all that. Um, And if you've been listening to the podcast from about episode two on, you might already know where, where I'm going with this. But to flesh that out, I want us to start on um, what we can think of as day one of the church, um, and that is in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, to set the scene a little bit, uh, it is the day of Pentecost, the Jewish holiday. And we are told that devout Jews from every nation um, have gathered together in Jerusalem. So all over the Roman Empire, um, Jews, devout Jews have come back to Jerusalem for this special day to celebrate it. And in the midst of that celebration in the crowds, the Holy Spirit shows up. And the apostles begin to uh, miraculously um, speak in all of those other languages represented by those people there, communicating the things of God and what he has done in Jesus the Messiah. And in the final line of Peter's message to the crowd there in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says to the crowd, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Probably a tough thing for some of them to hear, right? Hey, by the way, that Messiah that you've been waiting for for centuries, you just killed him, right? Which is why verse 37 tells us that when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And in verses 38 and 39, Peter says, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then in verse 40, it says that with many other words, uh, he testified and strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. And so what do they do? We're told in verse 41 that those who accepted his message were baptized And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So 3,000 people were added that day to them. That is a significant statement there, I think. Um, There's a a collection of people now numbering 3,000 plus who are on Jesus' side of things. But who is doing the adding? Is there, a, is there a guy over there with a ledger tablet and he's writing down names? No, I don't think so. I think the implication is that God is doing the adding. The adding. God is bringing people together. Into what, we might ask? Well, not into an organization, but into his family, into his household. Paul will later use the word adopted to refer to this, and I think that's significant. In fact, let's just, 
let's take a minute and let's just notice a few verses scattered throughout the New Testament um, and, and notice how coming to Jesus, how turning your life around and, and starting to follow Jesus, let, let's notice some ways in which that is described. And I think, think you're going to see a thread here, okay? So I'm just going to rattle through a few verses real quickly and just listen to them. <clears throat> so Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Um, uh, Christ came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, Abba is, is a, uh, it's an Aramaic word. It's, it's a very endearing, very affectionate term for father. The, the closest thing in, um, in English, um, mo- modern English, might be something like um, Papa or Daddy, okay? Um, so, he, so he goes on to say, Galatians 4, 5 through 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. John 1, 12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. Galatians 3, 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Through faith. Uh, Romans 8, 14 through 19. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So, <clears throat> God is building his family by adoption. And so when we give our lives to Christ in, in faith and repentance and baptism, he adopts us into his family and confers on us the full rights and privileges of sons and daughters of the king. So this is not just about getting your sins wiped out so you can go to heaven when you die. That, that, that's taking a, 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 a transactional sort of view of all this, right? Um, well, I'm going to do my piece. I'm going to get my get, my get out of hell free card, and then I'm going to go my merry way, right? Where I'm, I'm lost and now I'm found and my status has changed and I've got the legal document to prove it, right? That's not the way this is working at all. Um, anyone, uh, one of the, the words that popped up in the, those verses we just read several times is the, the idea of adoption, right? And anyone, we, we've, we've got some friends and some family members who have adopted children, and anyone I know who has been through the long and costly adoption process knows that when those, those papers are finally signed, 
that that while there there is a, a a judicial and legal component to it, the process is way more than that. For you, um, mom and dad, you're you're trying to adopt a, a baby. For you, this is not a judicial transaction. This is a relational one. And for this baby or this child who doesn't know anything about any of this, this is relational. You are, you are bringing a child into your family out of love. Now, and, and this is the discussion I really want us to have today with, with that background. What do relationships look like in the family of God? How do we get along with one another? You're, uh, you're, you're brought into this family, adopted into this family. Where's your place? How, how does this work? How do you get along with the people, the other people in this family? What does that look like? I want to say that the relationships that we are to have in the kingdom of God are so vastly different than the kind of relationships people who have outside of God's family. We, I, I want to I want to really nail a stake in the ground on this here today, if I can. I'm gonna try. See how well it goes. But the place to start here is again, I think, back in Acts chapter two. So I'm gonna read. We read up to up through Acts two, I think forty one. Uh, we're gonna start in Acts two forty two. And, and maybe just close your eyes when, when I read this. Um, if you got your Bibles, read it. Read it along, that's fine. But maybe just close your eyes and, and try to picture this. As I read, try to put yourself in the midst of this group of people that we're going to be describing here. And picture what this actually looked like, um, what, what, it, what it felt like, okay? So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anybody had need. And every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and, and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, is that a group of people you'd like to be a part of? It's a group of people I'd like to be a part of. It's that you know the picture there. It's this, it's this group of people. They've they have all been they have been transferred from people who are who have just been pierced to the heart and said, "What do we do?" To these people that are just enjoying life together with one another and with God. So one of the things in that in that. Verse It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. One of those things that I'm going to kind of hone in on is this idea of fellowship. Now, 
the word the word fellowship there is a Greek word. Um, it, it's pronounced um, koinonia, um, and in in a lot of places, koinonia is a is a word that is used. Um, we name businesses koinonia, and we like you you may have heard that word before. That word is translated in the Bible by a couple of different words, um, at which together I think help us kind of grasp the full depth of the word. Because if we say fellowship, we, you know, we we know we we hear that word, and even if you're not a Christian, you might use that word. Um, but if you're a Christian, oftentimes that word means we're getting together to hang out, or we're gonna or we're gonna have a meal together, or we have fellowship halls at our churches, which is a place we go and have potlucks, right? Um, we have fellowship meals, you know, where we're just getting together to hang out and do stuff. Sometimes we we sort of just think of fellowship as just getting together and hanging out. And there's certain nothing, nothing wrong with that. Nothing in the world wrong with that. That is a huge part of Christian togetherness. Okay. So I'm not I'm not criticizing that at all. Okay. But I want you to see that that, that word koinonia has some some other nuances to it. There's a there's some more depth to it than just that. Okay, so sometimes that word is translated um, fellowship, like it is here in Acts two forty two, but it is also translated by the word partnership, which connotes something a little different, right? Um, a, a a togetherness. We're we're partners, right? Second uh, Corinthians eight twenty three uses it that way. Um, it is also translated by the word participation, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 4. It is cr- translated by the word sharing, 2 Corinthians 1, 7. And it is translated by the word contribution in Romans fifteen twenty six. Okay? So there's some depth there. Again, we sometimes just think of it as getting together to have fun and maybe eat a meal together and spend time together. But the word the word carries a deeper sort of range of meaning than that. Um, at its core, koinonia describes um, inter, interdependent, mutually supportive relationships, not just getting together to watch a ball game, right? And, and to be clear, again... Some of that stuff that that's fine. That's that's great. That's good. I love doing that kind of stuff. Okay, but we're not so we're not against fun in God's family. Okay, we are not. We I am for fun. I am for fun in God's family. Okay, but there is a depth to the relationships in God's family that I think is is uh, fully encapsulated by this word. Um. God himself exists in community, and he intends for us to exist in community as well. And that community is tight. We are partnering with and participating in and contributing to each other's lives. We're sharing our lives and our resources and everything we are and everything we have with each other in a, in a deep and rich and meaningful way. And we see the depth of that interdependence here in Acts chapter 2, but we also see it in Acts chapter 4, okay, uh, verses 32 through 35, where in another passage, it sounds a lot like this one, uh, it says, 
the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, because all of those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of a family like that? where everybody cares for everybody else, everybody supports everybody else, where you, are, where you are loved and you know you're loved. One of the really big paradigm shifts in all of this for me over the years has been to start conceiving of the church as what it actually is, a family rather than an institution or an organization. Um, and there are a bunch of powerful implications to that that have changed many of my convictions about what church should look like. And we're going to unpack a bunch of those in, in the weeks ahead, I think. Um, but if the church is family, what does that mean about how we, how we function as church? I think sometimes, you know, we, we live, most of us here live in America. I, I see where my people are from that are, that are listening to this podcast. And so far, I think there's only one person from outside of the United States. So we all live in, the, in, the, in, the, in America here for the most part. Um, and we're used to kind of this, this sort of, I hesitate to say, but I'm going to say it, this sort of corporate idea of church. Right where church kind of functions sort of like a business. And I've heard people argue church has to function like a business. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call bunk on that, but I'm not going to do it today. <laughs> okay? Um, but we're used to thinking of it that way. We're used to the, the way we were organized, the way we function, the way we do business together, and we, and we even talk about it that way. Um, I want to say church is family. In God's mind, church is family. And if we think about it that way, if we really grasp what, what, what this thing is supposed to be, then we, we know how it's supposed to function, too. And if we know how it's supposed to function, then we recognize when it doesn't function that way. Okay, So um, I remember hearing, uh, um, and it was either Bill Hybels or Rick Warren, and I can't remember who, but I remember hearing one of them talk a number of years ago about how just hard, hard it was in these great big mega churches for people to have real relationships. Um, personally, in my own life, there have been times when I have been part of a big, huge church, and I have never felt so alone. And if if those kind of relationships aren't the, 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 the that that we read about in Acts two and that I think the New Testament describes over and over again, if those kind of relationships are not the lived reality of life in a church, then whatever else it might be, it's not really God's family. Because remember, God's whole point 
in drawing us together into this family is so that we could experience the perfect love that existed among Father, Son, and Spirit long before creation. He wanted to share that with us. We've talked about that from the, from the earliest episodes of this podcast. And I think the early church got that. But if you know anything at all about church history, you know that there were times, many times, some ancient, some very recent, and I would definitely say some current, when people's experience of church was and is anything but that. But Jesus' society relationships are supposed to be really different. And it all boils down to, to love. But what, is, what does that actually look like? And as is frequently the case, Paul is our helper here. Um, 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8 is a passage most of us are probably familiar with. Um, we read it a lot at weddings. We, it's the love passage, right? Paul describes love. Now, let me just tell you a, a little neat story. I don't think I've shared this before. Um, years ago, um, when I was working uh, with a church, I was asked to teach uh, the teen class uh, one time. So uh, I, I did a I did a series with the teens at that time about um, sort of what what living as a Christian in in their world looked like and how how Jesus. Um, really how, how we can bring to bear the, the, the life and teachings of Jesus into, into the kind of situations that they were facing. So we talked about, we talked about peer relationships. We talked about, you know, how do you choose a career? Cause a lot of them were, you know, 14, 15, 16, they were 17. They were starting to think about college. How do you, you know, how through the lens of the kingdom, how do you manage some of this stuff? One of the questions that we dealt with in that class was, how do you find a, 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 a good spouse? And I went to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and I made a list. I made a, a, and I printed out copies and gave them to all the kids. And um, it was, had two columns. One had the, um, the you know, each, each line of this, love is patient, love is kind. And I'll, I'll read all these in a sec. Each line of this... Um, uh, had its own line. Each love is statement had its own line. That was in column, the left column. On the right column, I just wrote, beside every one of those, I wrote, I wrote um, blank is love, blank is kind. And there were blanks for the word love, right? And what I said to the, to the teens, I said, so if you're, if you're dating somebody and you're trying to decide whether they're maybe going to be a good husband or a good wife, Go down through this list, and for every one of these statements that you think is true about your boyfriend or girlfriend, write their name on that line. Um, and if if you don't think that that statement is true about them, don't don't put don't write their name down. And I said, you get through this list, and you you look and you th you think that this person I'm dating, this boyfriend or girlfriend. They're only hitting about three of the 12 or 13 of these things. You know, they're not hitting very many. Maybe you ought to look somewhere else for a, for a boyfriend or girlfriend. But if you find somebody that's hitting far more than they're not hitting, you, maybe you really got something there, right? 
I'm going to say that's not a bad approach to look for in finding a church. Um, because if we start looking at our churches, I, I, you know, I've been at a lot of churches in my life, and if you start looking at this is, I don't want this to be a church bashing thing. Um, I, I'm afraid sometimes in this podcast I'm going to end up bashing some churches, and I don't mean to do that. But good golly, we got to talk about some of this stuff. We're not being the people that we need to be in this world. Okay, we got to change some things. Use this list and look at your church. Is my church patient? Is my church kind? Is my church envious? Is it is it boastful? Is it arrogant? Is it self-seeking? Is it is it irritable? And we we probably end up focusing on leadership a lot when we think about this. Does my church keep a record of wrongs? Right? That's you know, this is not a bad way to look at this. So first Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, you ever heard that? Um, I, I had a, a one of my early mentors um, I think I've talked about him before here. He was the, the the minister who I first kind of studied with, who kind of got me on the on the right path. Sperry Hogue was his name. Um, preached. He was a missionary in Scotland, but he, when I knew him, he preached at a little um, little church in Western Pennsylvania. And he always said to me, he said a lot of things that just really transformed me and stuck with me over the years. He says, if I'm going to make a mistake. In my life, uh, my, my walk with God, my ministry, I want to err on the side of love. I don't want to err the other way. I, I, I'd rather be wrong. I'd rather be too loving and find out that I was too loving, right? If you can be such a thing. Err on the side of love. Always. So what do... What do Jesus society relationships look like? Well, they're loving, of course, in, in every way that Paul talks about there. They're also supportive. You know, there, there are things, there are things for all of us that, that we just need to sort out in our in our walk with God. Um, some of which are just the the ins and outs of, of living life with God. Uh, what, what does God want of me? Um, how do I learn to, to live loved and to, and to really rest in, in the fact that he loves me and he's going to take care of me and, and not be so bound up by worry all the time? Um, learning how to hear from, from the Father, learning the skill of discernment, um, learning wisdom and letting wisdom become a part of me. Um, 
you know, we, those are just things we have to sort out. And, and we're still, a lot of, a lot of those things we sort out early on in our, in our Christian walk, hopefully, but some of them we're still working on, you know, well down the line. We need some other people to, to kind of support us and carry us through some of that stuff, right? Help us, help us learn to do this. And it's not so much always being taught as it is being, um, uh, I, I don't even want to say led. You know, sometimes we just need some people. Um, my son and I were talking the other day. Um, he's he's um, part of a couple of uh, men's groups, and he was talking about how important it is to have people that are much, much, much older than him in his life, but also to have people that are just a few steps down the road further than he is. And and that's true. That is really true. Um we need some people that that are a few steps ahead of us, you know, that can kind of show us how to do this, right? How to how to walk with God. Okay, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to do that. You just have to be a disciple, right? You can anybody can help somebody if you've been following God successfully which is not to say perfectly because none of us do it perfectly. But if you've been following God for, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, you can you can help somebody else do that. That's why that's why um shepherds, elders in the church are one of the one of the things that that we look at um according to the New Testament is how well have they run their family? Because if they can, if they can nurture their family, and if they can shepherd their kids along, and and help them grow, um, you know, they can probably do that with other people too, right? But if they don't do that well, you, like you're not going to manage a church well. You're not going to, uh, and I don't mean manage. That was a, you don't manage a church. You shepherd a church. I, I'm, I'm going to beat that drum. <laughs> Um, so you, you just have to sort some of this stuff out and you need help doing that. Um, things like identity and giftedness. What are your gifts? Um, calling, what, what, what do you feel God's calling you uh, to do? You just need help with all that, especially when you're a new Christian, but even when you're an older Christian. So you need some gentle, kind, shepherding sort of people that can support you and care for you and nurture you and, and lead you a little bit. Right, so these relationships need to be loving. They need to be supportive, but also, and this is this is kind of a negative thing, non-manipulative, non-coercive. Okay, and I'm I'm including this here because I have just seen this a lot, and you have too. Um, it is a real challenge sometimes to be supportive without being manipulative or coercive. Um, part of our fallenness is the compulsive desire that some of us have to make others like ourselves or to, or to get people on board with our agenda. And the ways that we do that sometimes are insidious and they can be hurtful and they can really short circuit someone's own walk with God. Uh, the, the, the book, um, it's a, it's an older book, but they just came out with a, a, a few years ago with an updated version the book boundaries. Uh, by Henry Cloud and John, I think John John Townsend. Um, it's a pretty helpful book. If you haven't read it, it's it's a it's a good book. Um, we, we sometimes think that our role as Christians is to change people, to convert them, to to you know um, 
get them on board. It's not. It is not. It is not. God is the change agent. We're not. Um, I, I loved my father. Um, but my father was an alcoholic. Um, and even long after he quit drinking, he was um, what we sometimes call a dry drunk. Um, because uh, alcoholism, alcoholism is often a symptom of something deeper. And it was with my father. And that caused a great deal of, of, of harm and fallout in our family. But because of that experience growing up that way, I have um, come to understand and to befriend a number of uh, recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. And one thing that they say, and you've heard this, and, and I've heard this, and it's absolutely true, is that no one will change unless they want to change. And that is so true, not just in, in addictions, but in any area of life. So our job is not to change people. That's God's job. Our job is to love people, to show them Jesus. We have, we have got to let people sort out their own walk with God, to, to follow Him, not us, and to let God change them in His time and not in ours. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but... Um, you remember remember the encounter? Jesus is the most, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is the most non-manipulative person that you're ever going to find. Um, uh, case in point, uh, his interaction with the, the person that we call the rich young ruler, right? Um, Jesus uh, tells him to, uh, you know, he wants to wants to know that he's okay with God. And, and Jesus said, have you done this, done this, done this? Yeah, 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 done all that. Well, do this then, he says, Jesus says. Uh, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow me. And the guy, and you can just see him as you read that passage, you can just see him, he bows his head and he turns and he slinks off away. He's, he's disheartened at that and he just can't bring himself to do it. And you know what the remarkable thing to me is when I read that story? Jesus lets him walk. He doesn't go chasing after him. He doesn't go say, wait a minute, you walking away? You can't do this. You're making a huge mistake. That's the kind of stuff we do, right? We hound people sometimes. Jesus let him walk. Totally non-manipulative. Not, not coercive at all, right? He lets that guy make his own decisions, Jesus is there, always ready to help, ready to encourage, ready to bless. But if you don't want that, he is not going to force it down your throat, right? So we, we, some of us, have to do a much better job of leaving people alone a little bit. Um, love them, love them. But, but lay off the, the, the pressure a little bit, okay? So loving supportive, non-manipulative, I'm going to add one more, intimate. Intimacy is a characteristic of Jesus-society relationships. And we've talked a little bit about that. But um, my friend Kent Smith always used to say, and this is one of my mantras, it was one of his and it's become one of mine, the pathway to intimacy is mutual self-disclosure. So if you want a close relationship, here parents, how about try this with your kids? You want a close relationship with your kids? 
You want them to always be able to, to, um, to come to you and share anything with you. Um, share your life with them. And don't, don't explode when they share their life with you. Okay? Mutual self-disclosure. If you want people to open up, you go first. My son, uh, I already mentioned him once. I'm going to, this is, he's going to love this. <laughs> um, he is one of the wisest young men that I know. He really is. And I asked him about this the other day. Um, I kind of wanted to get a, a kind of a young person's view on some of this relationship stuff. So I asked him, I said, what, in your view, in all that you've seen and, and in your world with young people, um, what do good relationships look like? And he thought about it for a second, and he said this. And, and talk about putting, putting everything together in one little, one little snippet. He said, what do good relationships look like? He said, trust, good communication, and enough grace so that when some element of the relationship fails, love is going to cover it all. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Isn't it just beautiful? Um, trust. Hmm. Communication, my gosh, and enough grace so that when some element of the relationship fall, fails, love is going to carry it through. Love covers a multitude of sins. You can mess up a lot of things in a relationship, but if, if the relationship is largely characterized by love, you can get through it. You really can. When we learn to be loving, supportive non-manipulative, gracious people, we are most like God. And people like that are incredibly attractive. Christians are supposed to be attractive. Did you know that? And we're attractive because we love like Jesus. The, the early church in the first couple of centuries, the early church grew primarily because Christians were attractive. Because People saw in their lives all the beauty and winsomeness of Jesus. And, that, and part of that beauty and winsomeness is how they loved people. In Ephesians 4, verse 25, Paul says, very simply, we are members of one another. In other words, we're family. And everyone wants to be part of a loving, supportive, gracious family. And many people aren't. But Paul is describing what should be. The kingdom of God has built in the idea of Christians authentically involved in each other's lives. That is, a, that is a concept that it is the heart of Christianity. But sadly, a lot of Christians miss that. For a lot of Christians, their faith is either about um, uh, securing a, a get-out-of-hell-free card or, or maybe it's just about, what's well, just me and God, Right? It's a very independent brand of Christianity, especially in the Western world. But the Bible paints a very different picture of healthy Christian relationships and says that Christianity is not intended to be a system of independence, but of interdependence. And in God's heart, the church, his family, is not just a collection of individuals, but a body, an organism 
of interdependent parts. I'm going to wrap up today with another quote by Thomas Merton. Uh, I had a quote by him last week. Here's something he says that I think is just beautiful. Okay, Um, The beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves that we find in them. I call that living love without agenda. I'm going to love people without imposing any kind of agenda on their lives. Now, would I like them to change? Yes. I want everyone that I know to know Jesus more, to give their lives to him fully, and to let him change them to be more like him. That's what I want. But since I can't make that happen in anyone, I have to just love them and show them how to open themselves up to Jesus in their own time. And that is exactly what God has done for us. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll uh, join us again next week and um, continue on the conversation. Uh, We would appreciate you if you'd tell others about the podcast. Um, And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, wherever you go. Um, Please visit our website, uh, thejesussociety.com, and um, find our new Facebook group. And I hope you'll join that too. Um, if you if you get on the Facebook group, um, if you've got ideas for for podcasts, things you want us to talk about together, um, please do that. Um, suggest those kind of things, and we'll we'll have a conversation about it there, and and uh, maybe it'll make it into a to a podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back. And remember, you are greatly, unbelievably loved.